0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Our text this morning is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. I think you'll be helped this morning to keep that passage open as we study through it. Let me read those verses for us. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. May our God bless the reading of his word. Well, a few years ago, there were all over the internet advertisements for a company called Masterclass. A Masterclass, in case you didn't see the advertisements, is a company that sells online access to video classes taught by experts in a variety of fields. So Masterclass offers a course on cooking taught by the world-famous British chef Gordon Ramsay. A Masterclass offers a class on basketball skills taught by Steph Curry. There's one on comedy from Steve Martin. There's one on songwriting from John Legend. As of last year, Masterclass Company, which was only seven years old last year, was valued at over $2.75 billion. So to put it mildly, they've done well in their first seven years. You don't really have to be a business expert to see uh, that Masterclass has done well, at least in part, because people naturally value and desire skillfulness. Many people will drop serious cash for expert help in doing the things they like to do more skillfully. Whether or not you're excited by any of those Masterclass offerings, uh, Don't you agree that it would be great to be skillful at what really matters in life? Wouldn't it be great to be truly skillful in the things that really matter in life? Wouldn't it be great to be skillful with your words? And not necessarily like an orator or a poet, but skillful like this, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 11 says, "The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life." Do you know any people who know how to give life with their words? Their speech is gracious. It's insightful. It builds you up. It honors God. It's firm and it's gentle right? The people whose mouth is a fountain of life. They don't talk too much, but when they talk, it gives life. Wouldn't it be great to be skillful with your words like that? Wouldn't it be great to be skillful in your relationships? Wouldn't it be great to to know how to be kind and helpful to the many different kinds of people in your life? Wouldn't it be good to know how to love prudently in the many different sorts of relationships that we all have in all their complexity? Wouldn't it be great to be skillful with your inner life or with your emotions? Proverbs 16.32 speaks about a truly rare kind of person. A Proverbs 1632 talks about a man who rules over his spirit. In Proverbs, the spirit is often the place where our strong emotions take place. And Proverbs talks about a person not who is a robot who doesn't have emotions, and not of a person who only has positive emotions or small emotions, but of a person who is not mastered by his emotions. A person who instead rules over his spirit. Proverbs says that he who rules his spirit is better than he who conquers a city. Wouldn't it be great to rule over your spirit, to be skillful with your inner life, your emotions? One more example wouldn't it be great to be skillful in the way that you handled money? However much money you have or make, wouldn't it be great to be adept at managing and saving and budgeting and investing and giving in a fruitful and God-honoring way? Wouldn't it be great to have a right heart orientation toward money so that your ultimate security is not tied up with your bank balance in your heart? so that you're free to be generous from the heart. Wouldn't it be great to be skillful at the things that really matter in life? Well, as it turns out, there is a word in the Bible for skillfulness in the most important things in life. And that word is wisdom. The root idea in the Bible behind the concept of wisdom is the idea of skillfulness. So, one of the first times that word wisdom appears in the Bible, it appears to describe a man who is named Bezalel. And Bezalel was a craftsman whom God had gifted to construct the tabernacle described in Exodus. God says this in Exodus chapter 31. He says, see, I have called by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, or literally, with wisdom and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Bezalel was given by God Skill, or literally wisdom, at sculpting and stone cutting and carving. Bezalel had the skills, the wisdom to construct a tabernacle that was both functional and beautiful, right? Bezalel's skillfulness is a subspecies of wisdom. And from the rest of Scripture, what we see is that wisdom in the broad sense, is that kind of skillfulness, not in craftsmanship, but in living as an image-bearer of God. Wisdom is being skillful with our words, in our relationships, with our emotions, with our money, in our work, in our families, in our thought life, in our worship, just like Bezalel was skillful as an artist, as a craftsman. Wisdom is knowing how to make it work and how to make it flourish, how to make it functional and beautiful and life-giving. You, know, you might know that the book of the Bible that speaks the most about wisdom is the one from which our passage this morning comes. It's the book of Proverbs, which, Lord willing, we'll be studying over the next few months. Uh, the book of Proverbs is not an online video course. But it is something like a biblical masterclass on wisdom. Proverbs is about how to live skillfully in God's world. Our sermon text this morning is the introduction to Proverbs. And my hope and prayer is, yes, that this passage would feed and instruct us. But I think that the author's intent behind the introduction to Proverbs is actually to leave you wanting to read the rest of the book. That's what a good introduction does, isn't it? Four points as we dive in our text this morning. Four points. I'll give them to you as we go. first point is the author of Proverbs. The author of Proverbs. We actually need to spend more time than you might think right here. Look there with me at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. That verse reads, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David king of Israel. The primary human author of the book of Proverbs is King Solomon, the king of God's people who ruled in Jerusalem around 900 BC. And we say that Solomon was the primary human author of Proverbs because there are some sections that were clearly written by others, some of whom appear to have lived after Solomon. But it's very significant that Proverbs is introduced with Solomon's name. In order to associate the whole book with Solomon's wisdom. As we heard earlier in our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings 3 and 4, God visited Solomon in a dream, and he made Solomon the wisest man on earth. So Solomon is qualified to teach the master class on wisdom, you might say. But there's another reason uh, that it really matters that Proverbs is associated with Solomon. And that's because Solomon is the most Adam-like person in the Old Testament. Solomon is the most Adam-like person in all of the Old Testament. Stay with me here. This is important. Solomon's life is recorded for us in the book of 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters. And the author of 1 Kings clearly and intentionally draws numerous parallels between Adam, what we know of him from Genesis 1 to 3, and Solomon. Let me show you three parallels between Adam and Solomon. They're brought to you this morning by the letter T. First parallel, thrones. Uh, The text of Genesis tells us that Adam was created to have dominion. Dominion over whom? Well, the text says dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who gets dominion? Kings get dominion, right? Adam didn't have a literal physical throne as far as we know, but he was created to be a kind of king under God over the creatures. Adam was a king. Solomon was also a king. In our Old Testament reading from 1 Kings chapter 4, a few verses before our reading actually, the author tells us that God gave Solomon dominion, same word from Genesis, over all of the kings west of the Euphrates. And remember, we're told specifically in chapter 4 verse 33 of verse Kings that Solomon spoke of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. Why does the author tell us that? Right? We don't, he doesn't tell us Solomon's height or his favorite sport, but he tells us, hey, Solomon, he wrote about the animals. He studied them. Why? It's because Solomon is fulfilling Adam's job as the king of the creatures. Right? You see? Adam and Solomon sit on thrones, so to speak. Second parallel between Adam and Solomon, temples, thrones and temples. Before the fall, Adam lived in the Garden of Eden, where God dwelt together with man. Well, what do you call it, where God dwells with man? The Bible calls it a temple, right? Eden was a temple-like garden, It was filled with beautiful plants. God dwelt there with man. We're told, seemingly randomly, that there was gold in the vicinity of Eden. And when Adam gets kicked out of the temple-like garden of Eden, who guards the way back in? The cherubim, right? The angels. Adam lives in Eden, God's dwelling place with beautiful plants and gold that later gets guarded by the cherubim. Well, you might know that Solomon is famous in Scripture for building an extremely garden-like temple to symbolize God's dwelling with his people, Israel. Solomon's temple had engravings of beautiful plants. Inside the temple, there were two massive sculptures of cherubim, and almost everything in the temple was covered with gold. Adam and Solomon are both pictured as men of the temple. The third parallel between Adam and Solomon, our author of Proverbs, is trees, thrones, temples, and trees. What were the two trees in the middle of the garden temple Eden? Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And how did King Adam lose his throne and access to the temple? Well, against God's command, Adam proudly grasped for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tried to decide what was good and what was evil apart from God. That's how Adam fell. Well, how did Solomon become wise? Solomon humbly asked. For what? For the knowledge of good and evil. First Kings chapter three, verse nine, Solomon prays this, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Right? That's, that's what wisdom is, the ability in the details of life to discern between what's good and evil. Adam proudly defies God by grasping for the knowledge of good and evil, and he falls. Solomon humbly asks God for the knowledge of good and evil. And he rises. The book of First Kings tells us that he rises to be the highest of the kings on earth. All right, what was the other tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden? Uh, the tree of life, remember? When well, near the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam gets kicked out of the garden so that he can't have the tree of life and live forever. Do you know the only other place in the Old Testament that mentions the tree of life? The only other place in the Old Testament. Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, we're told that the wisdom that Solomon offers us is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Do you see that the biblical authors are drawing these parallels between Adam and Solomon so that we see Solomon as something like what Adam was meant to become. The Bible presents Adam as the seed, and in some ways, Solomon as the flower, right? You understand? Okay, so that's cool. Why does that matter for a sermon series in Proverbs? The Adam-like status of Solomon, the author of Proverbs, it's our first point, author of Proverbs, it really illumines our second point which is the purpose of Proverbs. The purpose of Proverbs. Here's the punchline for the whole Adam-Solomon thing. If you are a child of Adam, if you're a human being, then the wisdom of Proverbs is what you were meant to grow up and become. If there were a manual for human flourishing... It would be the book of Proverbs. If there were a manual for how to be a mature and flourishing beaver, it would say things like this. It would say, be nocturnal and eat shrubs and clover, chew down trees and build dams to stop flowing water. That's how to be a mature and flourishing beaver. If there were a manual on how to be a mature and flourishing image bearer of God, it would be Proverbs. It would say things like this, fear the Lord, listen more than you talk, be kind, work hard, think carefully, run away from sexual immorality. A proverbs is associated with the wisdom of Solomon because Solomon in some ways symbolizes what Adam, what you and me were meant to grow up and become. Solomon's wisdom offers us the tree of life, the truly good life that Adam lost. Here's another way to say the same thing. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach us wisdom. That's all I've been saying in much simpler words. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach us wisdom. Look there at the first three words of verse 2. The first three words are to know wisdom. Proverbs was written so that we might know wisdom, so that we might know how to live skillfully. In the next few verses, what we see are a list of words that unpack and explain what wisdom looks like. Let me show you there again in verse 2. It says, to know wisdom and instruction. I don't think that we should see these, these words as kind of different things than wisdom. But as unpacking wisdom. If I said, I'm going to teach you how to play guitar, how to strum and pluck and solo and use the scales, right? The the second things, they unpack the first thing, right? You understand? That, That word translated instruction, it's unpacking the wisdom that Proverbs gives us. And that word instruction, there in verse two, it often has the idea of correction or of showing us what's wrong. So as it turns out, in order to get wisdom, We need to be told things that we wouldn't conclude on our own. We need to be told things that are contrary to our natural inclinations. And Proverbs offers to give us the instruction, the correction that we need. Look at the second line of verse 2. To understand words of insight. Literally, you might translate this line, to understand words of understanding. In the Bible, that, you, that word that here gets translated as understand, that word means perceiving the true nature of a situation. There's a story in the Bible where King David's son is sick, and eventually King David's son dies. But David doesn't know yet that his son is dead. He's mourning outside his home. And his servants who know that his child is dead, they're whispering to each other about the child's death, but they don't want to tell David. And the text says that David understood what was going on. And he said that the child is dead, isn't he? He saw what was going on in the situation. That's a simplistic and a very sad illustration. But do you see the understanding that Proverbs is offering us is the ability to see clearly, to perceive what is truly going on in relationships and situations. Do you know people who have understanding, right? These are the people that you go to for advice, or I hope these are the people you go to for advice, right? You explain a situation or a problem or a question or a relationship to them, and they listen and they listen and they listen, and then they just put their finger on the nub of it. They say, it seems like this is what's going on, right? They have understanding. They have perception. They see reality clearly. That's part of the wisdom that Proverbs offers to teach us. And notice Proverbs offers to help us understand words of insight. When someone speaks words that illuminate what's going on, that resonate with your experience, it's like someone throws the floodlights on in the middle of the night, right? It's, it's so helpful. It, it makes you rejoice. Words of understanding, that's what Proverbs offers to us. Look there at verse 3, continuing to unpack the wisdom that Proverbs offers to us. Verse 3 reads, to receive instruction in wise dealing. That word translated wise dealing, uh, it's one word, gets two words in our English translation. It can refer to the ability to make and successfully execute plans. It can mean to accomplish one's mission. Oh, what kind of mission will Proverbs teach me to accomplish? Any kind of selfish mission that I decide on? Uh, no, look again at verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, verse 3, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Righteousness, justice, and equity. There are particular nuances to each of these words. We're not going to dive into that right now. The author here stacks three synonyms next to each other, all of which describe what is morally good and right. Friend, do you ever find yourself in a situation or a relationship or at a decision point where, by God's grace, you really want to do the right thing? but you don't know what that is. If that's you, then what you need is wisdom. Wisdom involves the ability to discern what is right and just and equitable in the everyday complexities of our lives. That's what Proverbs is offering to teach you. Verse four, the purpose of Proverbs is to give prudence to the simple. In Proverbs, the simple Uh, are people who are uninformed or naive or inexperienced. So, fools are hardened against wisdom. They've consciously chosen to reject wisdom. The simple just haven't received it yet. Well, Proverbs offers to give simple people prudence, This is what Bible scholar Tremper Longman says about that word translated prudence. He says, prudence carefully considers a situation before rushing in. It implies cool-headedness. Another scholar says that prudence includes the ability to devise tactics in the attaining of one's goals. Uh, The wisdom of Proverbs offers to help you know what right, godly, just, righteous, equitable goals to set and to attain them by thinking well and being cool-headed. Look again at verse 4. Proverbs is to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. Any youth in the building this morning, anyone under 18. Youth, I'm so moved that you guys came to sit by me this morning. That just made my day. Youth, any, any youth, anyone, under, anyone, anyone with hands? Can you show me your hands under 18? Excellent, very good. Ah, I see you now. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, youth, congratulations. You are in the Bible. Look at that, the end of verse four. The youth, it's you. The Bible's for you. Listen, if you're here today and if you're a young person, Proverbs is especially for you. The whole Bible is for all of God's people, certainly. Uh, But Proverbs is particularly appropriate to educating and equipping young people. Proverbs offers to teach you discretion. Proverbs can help you think wisely about what's going on in your life. Uh, Proverbs offers you the knowledge that you really need. Are you ever in school? and someone's giving you knowledge, and you just think like, why do I need this knowledge? Does this matter? Like, am I going to need this later? This knowledge seems irrelevant. You should still pay attention when that happens to honor the Lord for sure, but listen, the knowledge that Proverbs gives you, this is the knowledge that you need. This is the knowledge that will bless you in life. If you are young, dive into the book of Proverbs. Read it for yourself. It is not too hard for you. You can understand it. Ask for God's help to give you wisdom as you read the book of Proverbs. Well, it's Proverbs only for young people and for simple people. I'm glad you asked. No. No. Look there at verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Isn't that interesting? If you're here this morning and you're already wise, well, what should you do? Right? Let the wise talk the most to show everyone how much they know. That's how I think sometimes. Have mercy on me, Lord. Let the wise tune out because they already know this. No, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Wise people love to ransack what other people say for wisdom. They are astute listeners. What if you already understand? Thanks, David. I've studied Proverbs. Glad these other people are getting the scoop, but uh, I'm good. Proverbs says, let the one who understands obtain guidance. So that he might go deeper into wisdom. Brothers and sisters, wise people are remarkable, not for how much they talk, but for how they listen. Wise people are remarkable, not for how much they talk, but for how they listen. Look at verse 6. I think verse 6 is parallel to verses 2 and 4. So we're getting more purposes or further exposition of the purpose of Proverbs. Proverbs is written, verse 6, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. One quick comment about the genre of Proverbs here. Proverbs doesn't have any of what we today would describe as riddles, right? What walks on four legs in the morning and however that one goes. Uh, But that word riddles It actually helps us because it communicates that Proverbs contains material about which we have to think slowly and carefully, especially the two-line sayings that occupy most of chapters 10 to 31. Chapters 1 to 9 mostly have speeches. Chapters 10 to 31 mostly have two-line sayings. Those two-line sayings, they repay careful attention. If you read Proverbs, let me encourage you to do so slowly and carefully. Assume that there's more in a given verse of Proverbs than you see initially. Lord permitting, we'll say more about that in future weeks. The author of Proverbs is Solomon. The purpose of Proverbs is to teach us wisdom. Third point here is the theme of Proverbs. Point number three, the theme. Of Proverbs. One of the things we learn from the book of Proverbs is that wisdom is multifaceted. In other words, wise behavior uh, looks really different depending on the situation that you're in. As I mentioned, that second half of the book of Proverbs, it contains over 500 two-line sayings which address all kinds of different topics. And if Proverbs is going to teach us wisdom, it has to be that way because wisdom is not a one-size-fits-all thing. There are not three easy steps to being wise about everything. Wisdom is complex, but there is one thing that's always right at the heart of being wise. So I used to be a swim instructor uh, and for, for children uh, and swimming is a pretty complex skill, right? Almost every part of your body is involved. There is not one simple step to swimming good freestyle. But for small children, there is one thing that can really make or break almost everything else that you're doing. And that is, free swim lesson here, looking down at the bottom of the pool while you're trying to swim. See, small children have relatively large and heavy heads uh, compared to the rest of their bodies. So if you try to swim as a kid looking up, your hindquarters will drop and wiggle, and you'll spend most of your energy trying to stay up. But if you will just put your head down, if you look at the black line on the bottom of the pool your body will become a flat and floating sea vessel. And everything else that you're doing becomes a lot simpler. It's amazing how many problems go away when you just get your head position right. The beginning of good swim technique is looking down. Well, here in verse 7, we get the beginning of true wisdom. In fact, the beginning even of all knowledge that's ultimately worth having. Look there at the the first line of verse 7. Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Listen, the first and most essential step to living skillfully in God's word is fearing the Lord. Let me just give you a really easy definition of the fear of the Lord. I'm, I'm drawing here from Charles Bridges and from Mike Reeves here. Lord permitting, we'll say much more about the fear of the Lord in coming weeks. Let me just give you a quick definition. The fear of the Lord is humility, awe, reverence, and delight toward God that shapes everything you do. H-A-R-D, hard. Humility, awe, reverence, and delight. I would have liked to spell a more positive word, but there you have it. The fear of the Lord is humility, awe, reverence, and delight toward God that shapes everything you do. The beginning of knowing what you need to know, of being skillful in life, is not looking down. It's looking up. It's your head position, what are you going through life looking at? Who are you going through life most conscious of? If you want to be skillful in life, go through life with humble, awe-filled, reverent, delightful fear of God. If you want to be skillful in speaking wise words, remember that God is holy and hears everything you say and knows why you say it. If you want to be skillful in your relationships, keep in mind how God has dealt with you in kindness and faithfulness. If you want to be skillful with your money, remember who owns everything and who gives and takes away at his own good pleasure. The beginning of true knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Humility, awe, reverence, and delight toward God. Friend, let me ask you, is that how you live? Do you do what you do in life because of your humble, awe-filled reverence and delight in God? Does the fear of God regulate your emotions and your speech and your spending? Does reverent regard for the glory of God master you? Is that the engine that drives your thinking and your behavior? Or friends, could it be that the root problem behind our lack of skillfulness in life is actually that we don't fear God? Could it be that we actually run afoul of wisdom, not because we're uninformed, but because we don't fear our Creator. Friends, if you're willing to dive into the book of Proverbs, be prepared to be shown your sin. Be prepared to be shown that you are a fool, that you have failed to fear God. Let me give you some examples here. First example is the last line in our passage, looking in at verse 7. Verse 7 says from the beginning the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction friend how do you take correction more specifically how do you take the correction of god's word when god's instructing word confronts you about your sin what's your track record on actually changing or maybe after you feel convicted for a little while, do you despise God's instruction and go back to what you were doing? When God's instruction confronts us and we despise it, it's because we lack the fear of the Lord. We're not constrained by humility and awe and reverence and delight toward God. A second example here, Proverbs 12, 18. It says, there is one Whose rash words are like sword thrusts. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Have you ever stabbed anybody with your words? I have. And what it's revealed is a heart that is not controlled by humility and awe and reverence and delight toward God. Because if I were constrained by these things, I would have been more careful in my speech to the people that he cares about. A third example, in Proverbs 25, 28, it says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Friend, has your lack of self-control ever left you completely vulnerable to your foolish passions? To laziness? To gluttony? To lust? To hurtful words? To impulsive purchases? When we lack self-control... It's because we're not controlled by humility and awe and reverence and delight toward God. We just want to feel good about ourselves on our timetable. One more example, a Proverbs sixteen five. Maybe you're unscathed so far. A Proverbs sixteen five says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Listen, sometimes the reason that I want to be wise, sometimes the reason that I want to be skillful is for the glory and honor of me. Sometimes we pursue skillfulness, not so that we can love God and our neighbor better, but so that we can run faster after our idol's sometimes we pursue skillfulness as a means to the end of making not God, but ourselves great and glorious. And brothers and sisters, that however skillful we might be is monumentally foolish in a world ruled by a holy God. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Throughout Proverbs, life and blessing are promised to the wise. And death and cursedness are promised to the fool. And friends, Proverbs reveals that we are great fools The theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord, and we have not feared the Lord as we should. If on the day of judgment God deals with us on the basis of how wise we have been, we have no hope. Which is why I'm delighted to say to you that our fourth point this morning, in closing, is the Christ of the Proverbs. Brothers and sisters, Proverbs is written to teach us wisdom, but Proverbs is not a moralistic self-help book in the middle of a Bible that is otherwise about Jesus. Proverbs is written to point us to the son of David, the king of Israel. Look, if you read Proverbs with a shred of self-awareness, you cannot but ask, who? does that, right? Who measures up to the wisdom fleshed out for us in gritty detail in Proverbs? I don't. And the Bible is actually clear that Solomon didn't either. If you read the book of Kings, you'll find that Solomon was really rather much like his father, Adam. He fell into a grievous pattern of transgression against the Lord. Solomon, the son of David, can tell you about the tree of life, but he does not reach it. He cannot give you its fruit. The man who knew that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of knowledge, the scripture says that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Solomon's heart was not, nor was his son's Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, or his son, King Abijam, or his son, King Asa, or any of the other kings, the sons of David, who sat on Solomon's throne throughout the Old Testament. But 200 years after Solomon sat on his throne, listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote about the son of David who was to come. Isaiah 11one 1 to 3. Isaiah prophesies, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is Solomon's grandpa. Isaiah says, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Listen, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Do those terms sound familiar? The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Can you hear Isaiah telling the people of God, listen, Solomon was not the second Adam that we needed, but there is coming a king who will live up to the wisdom of Proverbs. There is coming a king who doesn't just fear the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. What was Jesus' favorite thing to do? It was to live from humble, awe-filled reverence and delight in God. Jesus is the wise man of Proverbs. He is the true son of David, the true king of Israel, the one who brings us back to the tree of life. Jesus is the wise man of Proverbs. Listen, next time you read through one of the gospels, look at how wise Jesus is. He is a master of life. Look at his words. Look at his relationships. Look at his emotions. He does all things well, as we sang about earlier. Adam was created to be a wise and kingly image bearer of God. Solomon shows us, in some ways, imperfectly, what Adam should have become. Jesus is, in every way, the perfect image of the only wise God. And even though Jesus, more than anyone who ever lived, deserved the blessedness and life that wisdom offers, Jesus died as a curse in the place of fools like you and me. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Friends, this is our hope. Our arrogance has been punished. The punishment that brought us peace was On Jesus. Jesus, the wise man, died in the place of fools to take our curse so that we might have the tree of life. If you're here this morning and you are unsure in any way of your standing before God, of whether you live under his blessing and will receive life from him, or under his curse and are headed for death, then the good news for you is that if you will trust in Jesus Christ, God will deal with you not as you deserve for your foolishness, but according to his mercy, you will get what Jesus deserved. He will have taken what you deserve. Jesus didn't just die in the place of the fool, but precisely because he was wise unto death. Three days after he died, God raised Jesus to life. And listen, King Jesus has been exalted higher than Solomon ever thought of going. Jesus has been given the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus has created the true temple of God, us, his body, the church. Jesus died on a tree as a curse to restore our access to the tree of life. The tree of life also appears in the book of Revelation as something that Jesus restores to God's people, the good life in God's presence forever. Jesus has earned it. Let me close with this. Talked about thrones, temples, and trees. What about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam fell when he proudly grasped for the knowledge of good and evil. Solomon succeeded for a little while when he humbly asked for the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember how our scripture reading from Hebrews 5 describes the maturity that God is producing in his people? Hebrews 5 says that what God is doing in you, if you're a Christian, is he's producing in you the ability to distinguish good from evil. God is making you wise, like Jesus is wise. And not only has Jesus borne your foolishness, not only has his wise life won for you the tree of life forever, Jesus has enrolled you for free in his lifelong masterclass on wisdom. If you are a Christian, however wise or foolish you are right now, you can grow in wisdom because the spirit of the all-wise King Jesus dwells in your heart. And as you listen to God's word by faith, he is at work to make you wise like Jesus. Wisdom is living skillfully in God's world and God gives mercy to foolish sinners, and Jesus, through Jesus, and through Jesus, He makes them wise. We pray that the Lord would do that in us, Father. We thank you for this book of Proverbs, Lord. We thank you for the wisdom that you show us in Proverbs, God. We thank you for Jesus Christ the wise son of David, cursed in our place as a fool, risen, justified, and given eternal life for our own salvation and life. God, please, as we study Proverbs together by your permission, would you make us wise like Jesus is wise to the glory of your name and the joy of your people. Through Christ, amen. If you're able, please stand as we sing our final hymn.